I'd like to open your Bible just very briefly to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll begin there. Our title for the message this morning is Obligated to Service. Obligated to Service. I used the word obligated twice in the wedding yesterday because I had been studying it all week and had prepared it, but the word means more to me now than it did before. When Paul was speaking Wednesday night about what they were doing and what was on his heart concerning the rest of us, I had remembered that Tuesday morning when I was preparing for today, it started on Tuesday, and I was working. I, first, I sat down, and now what should I say, Lord? I thought, surely I'll go back to Second Chronicles chapter 7, or chapter somewhere, and I was just quiet and still there for a minute, and then the thought came. Many would say, they, well, the Lord told me. Well, it could have been the Lord, but the thought, the impression that came to my heart was, and I wrote it down, is obligate them to serve. My responsibility or my approach to you is to somehow obligate you to serve, not to me, not to a man's system or a man's way, but to serve the Lord. That began an engaging conversation. How do we do that? I mean, how do you obligate anybody to do anything? If it ever works in the end, it only works because God caused it. But there's still a provocative thought, and I begin to think about it. Obligate them to service. Then Paul said what he said Wednesday night, and we had a short conversation. I thought, you know, I believe the Lord is maybe stirring us in a certain direction or a certain way. Maybe something has been lying dormant or latent in our lives for a long time, and now things are beginning to get stirred. Good. That's good, because if not, you can get very complacent. You can get satisfied. You can just find a seat in a church somewhere, and that's good enough, and that's the way you spend your whole spiritual life, and that's not good. But when God stirs us up and makes us think, causes us to ponder what he's saying, to evaluate ourselves in light of that and see where you are and how you're doing, it gets very interesting. You get convicted. But anyway, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Wouldn't that be good if the church was full of people that anything that God wanted, we'd value? Yes, I'll go. And God says, you don't know where we're going. All I know is if you want us to go, you'll be there when we get there. And along the way, you'll be there too. So we'll make it. But here am I, send me. Isn't that good? But not all Christians, I don't think, are like that. I think all of us would like to have that as our testimony and as God's evaluation of us. That God can use whoever he wants in this church. All he has to do is just put a, a little stirring spark in your heart and you'll find yourself going, I want to do that. And your mind says, but what about your job and your future and your education and the American dream and all the pursuits that lie before you that are there for the taking? I mean, he's asking you to go disappear in a jungle? There's no future in that, is there? It all depends on how you look at it. But you see, we've been bought with a price, have we not? The Bible says we do not belong to ourselves anymore. The right to my life has been given to God when I was born again. I saw my sin. I saw the depth of my sin and the penalty and the coming punishment for my sins. And God says, I'll remove all of that. I'll forgive you all of that. All I want is you. I want you to give you to me. And if you will, I will give what I have to you. And if I can keep that in my mind all the time, then serving God is a natural obligation that I can make at any time, anywhere, for any reason. All I need is to hear from God. Sitting here, I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. God has a message and a word for me here. 
something that brings conviction, something that is designed to stir me up, not designed to make me comfortable and happy. Edify, yes, but something that is designed to promote his way in my life as I go through life. And the future that is before me is not mine to figure out. It's his to show to me, and it's mine to do what he said. Just be faithful, for that is how we live. The just shall live faithfully. And without that, the Bible says, we cannot please God. But he said, Lord, here am I. Send me. What God does on this earth, he does through people. He uses people. It seems in the mass of all the people that assemble before him, not all of them are willing to do his bidding, but some are. There are always those individuals who will tread where angels fear to tread, who will cast off all their tomorrows in order to live today, just to do the Lord's will. They're willing. They have a willing heart, a heart that is still pliable. A heart that doesn't want to go back to sin, remembers the awfulness of sin, remembers the moment of grace and deliverance from sin, and want to keep that focus in front of them that God who saved me has a right to me. He can do whatever he wants to. But we have to be sent. God sends people. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Direct my steps. What is it you want? Just let me get a glimpse of it, show it to me, and then cause my feet to go in that direction. I'll leave the future to you. I'll leave the happiness of my accomplishments to you. Not by will, but thine be done. Just show me thy way that I may walk in thy truth, the psalmist said. And even Romans 10 says, how can anybody be saved unless somebody preaches to them? And yet, how can they preach except they be sent? That's an interesting thought. I don't want to labor that this morning. But there's a lot of people that are preaching who weren't sent. It's a noble profession, they say. Let's go study that. Let's learn how to preach a sermon. Let's learn how to organize a religious system. Let's learn how to do things that engage people and good things to do. And we pat ourselves on the back. It must be good. It has to be good because, well, we're doing it in the name of the Lord. And anything you do in the name of the Lord has to be good. But what if we're not called or sent to do that? We can learn how to do that, can't we? I've known men in my life that I had been around for years back then who knew as much about the Bible as anybody that I was around could put verses together, could witness, could explain something. I mean, sometimes I like, well, let him tell you. He knows as much about it as anybody. And you would think that somebody like that's called to preach. And he tried that, but he couldn't. He could put things together. He had a nice personality, good presentation, but there was no pop anointing. And people came for a while, and then they, nothing was there, and they left. And the great disappointments came in his life. I mean, how could I know all of this and all of that and and nothing? Because that's not what God sent him to do. He's doing it because other people do it. He's probably practiced in front of a mirror and realized he can do that. But that's not what God sent him to do. You know what? If you're not sent, if you're not called, or if you're not supposed to be doing what you're really wanting to serve God in some way and do, if you're not sent to do that, It won't work. But when you are, it will work. God has to make us willing. And he does. God makes us willing because that's the people that does his bidding. I want to do it. I'm not discouraged when things don't go well. I don't give up and quit when people reject me. Or when people turn away and do this or that. And I know Jeremiah had no crowd except all those that booed him. Nobody liked him. They were all against him. He pronounced judgment in the days of good kings, of one good king. Nobody liked him. But you know what? God made his head like flint because he sent him to preach his word. He said, they're going to reject you. They're going to discount you. Like he would say about Jesus, they're going to crucify you. 
You're going to die because you're doing this. Because of what you're saying, they will hate you. Because of what you sent to do, they will kill you. Remember the book of Revelation? You hold fast and you endure. They'll put you to death, but there's a crown waiting for you. Some people can see that. And they're willing. They've got it in their heart that this is what God wants me to do. And they obligate themselves to it. Jeremiah speaks many times about those that were sent out to do things. And God said, I didn't send them. They preached. They proclaimed the word. And God said, I didn't send them to do that. Let me show you something. If you don't mind with it just for a moment, would you turn to Jeremiah 23? You're not that far from it. One book to the right. Jeremiah 23 and verse 32. 32, he said, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams. Let me tell you why people prophesy false dreams. For the same reason they said in the book of Isaiah, they didn't like to hear the word of the Lord. People still don't. People still don't like to be taught and to be told they're not right. They need to get right. They still don't like it. I don't think the church will ever, ever like that. But it's what the word of the Lord comes to do. And when people want praise, a following, to be liked, admired, and maybe the money that goes with it, you tend to want to give people what they want. So you prophesy falsehood. Remember the people came in Isaiah's day and said, quit talking about this holy one of Israel. Man, you are wearing us out. That's the Kentucky version. You are wearing us out. Then they said this, prophesy smooth things. Remember that? We don't care if it's true. Just make it sound good. I mean, we came to church this morning. We don't want to get stirred up and go home aggravated or, or <laughs> dealing with stuff. We want to go to a nice, friendly meeting and be happy. This is church, isn't it? We're supposed to feel good when we get out of here. Prophesy illusions, they said. Make it up. An illusion is... You know, you know what magic is, something that's not real, but it looks good. That's what the people wanted. There are those who will cater to that, and that's what they get. So they prophesy false things, but what people like. They tell them things that aren't true because people like that, and they're in a pulpit or a place of authority. And you can do that if you have a good personality to go with it and people like you. They'll accept what you say. They think you know what you're talking about. After all, it seems to work for you. And God said, back to verse 32 again, he said, I'm against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord. And do tell them. And cause my people to what? To make wrong decisions to make wrong turns, and to accept wrong beliefs in their life. To get it wrong. To not see it right. And the reason they do is because that's what they were taught. I was like that. I think many of you were. You know, my dad was a Catholic. My brother was a Catholic. And I know that they believed what they were told about Mass and about the Catholic faith. I was in the Christian church. And it really didn't matter to me what they did. I just wanted to say I was there. I'm a part of that, whatever it is. And I never cared anything about what I heard in church ever until after I got saved. And when I got saved, my heart changed. Something clicked and turned around in my heart, all things became new. And now I'm, I'm curious, what does that mean? What does this mean in the Bible? Well, go ask the preacher and annoy him. He used to tell us, he said he was getting annoyed with all these questions. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're just supposed to come, listen to what you're saying and believe it. Go home, leave me alone. And we were stirred. We were drawn out of some complacent setting. I was. I'm sure others were. And there was something more to what I'm here for than what I had been here for. 
I wanted to know. We began to ask questions and learn. Bought a book on the Greek language so I could understand Greek words. And then when the preacher said something that wasn't exactly right, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. And then he even found a pen. You could take a note. Uh, Brother John, uh, Sunday morning. And you could see him going, man, why, why y'all want to buy all them books and ask all these questions? Because I want to know the truth. He said to me later, he said, you know, it was because of all of this movement of God, especially towards the word of God, to get it right. To get it right. He said, I began to realize that I had never paid as a preacher. I had never paid much attention or put much value on getting it right because... What promotes us as preachers is how well the church is growing. How many people are here? How many did you start with? How many do you have now? You do well here, you can get a better job, bigger parsonage, better benefits somewhere else. And the preacher begins to use people to promote himself. Now, I know you don't think that would happen, but it does. But our hearts begin to be stirred. What are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing? Lord, we didn't know what to do, but we knew there was something as Paul said the other night, there was something that had been in this body and in this mind, this heart for a long time. I never knew what it was. Nobody ever drew it out. It was lying dormant in my life, something that God was going to use, something that God wanted me to investigate and learn. I never had. I didn't even know that until after I got saved. And then I heard somebody preach, begin to listen to what they were saying, then begin to ask myself, do I believe that? What he said, do I believe that? Or when I'm reading privately, do I believe that? I'd never heard that before. And then it went from this and went from that, and it kept going. And it still does. It still is going. It doesn't end. There's just a vast way that God begins to stir us up, and those little areas of our life have been locked up in closets, talents, abilities that you have you didn't know. I think of the enormous number of people outside of these walls that are waiting for you to get in their life and share what's in your heart, what you've learned, what God has shown you, how he's changed your life. And they're waiting on you to stir them and tell them that. The lady at the bus station, the lady at the store, at the meeting, at the beauty shop, wherever you are, at working, at McDonald's. The hitchhiker in our day used to pick up everyone we could so we could preach to them. We did. You say, well, as that servant God, we thought it was great. Picked them all up and then, it's my turn. I get this one. You got the last one. Used to get her Bibles out on Sunday morning at the altar call, just as I I was in the choir loft up here. I used to get my Bible out, put it in Romans 3. And I said, the first one is heads forward. I'm going to get him. The preacher didn't have to go down and talk to anybody. We lined up. Is that service? I didn't know there was that kind of a desire in me to do that. I was never trained that way, never taught that way. How did that get in here? It was the Lord that stirred it up, but it had been in there. A caring about other people. Wanting to do something for somebody besides yourself. To go somewhere nobody can pay you back. Where all you can do is give and do it with joy and not say, I wish I was home, it's hot. Man, you ought to have been on some of my trips through the years. A bed about that long, they put you in to sleep in. <laughs> I remember up in Wisconsin once at Brother Ides, I slept in Vicky, his oldest daughter's bed. It was about that long. And they showed me the room. The room was this wide. And I got into bed and I put my suitcase on the floor and I was trying to get around the suitcase and then trying to get in bed at night. Just figuring, we're not getting out of bed tonight. And then in the morning, there were three little eyes, you know, heads looking into the <laughs> I remember telling Gary in those days, could I go to a motel? <laughs> What's the matter? You don't like it here? I said, I love it here. Just take me to a motel. But you get to the place where 
it really doesn't matter what kind of obstacles are in the way. They're all part of the test. You just overlook them and you just go on. You quit worrying about being cute, handsome, or masculine. You just figure that whatever you are, you are because God made you that way. That's what he's going to use. You want God to so stir your life that you become obligated inwardly, spiritually, to obligate yourself to whatever it is that God has for you without regret. Without regret. Because it is God who stirs us up. We don't want to preach falsehood. We don't want to be like these folks here were. We haven't left Jeremiah yet. And what the last part of verse 32 says, when you have falsehood and when you have things that are not as God sent it, people who alter what they're doing because nobody would like it if I said that, nobody would like it if I did that, but here's what they like and here's what, here's what God says about their ministry. What if they preach 50 years and this is what it came to? He said, they shall not profit this people at all because by their lies and their lightness, he said, I didn't send them, I didn't command them, and therefore... The people they're standing before will not profit, be advanced, be improved upon by that ministry. Y'all hear what I'm saying? In these last days, when there is, from where I'm standing in my perch, been looking over the church for nearly half a century now, going on that, and I see a lot of Good people that are just a little casually indifferent. You know, I'm just glad I'm here, and that's, if you're going to keep pushing on me, I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, you can do that. But I'll guarantee you here, no man here is an island to himself. Everybody here, if you're saved, you belong to God. You gave rights to your life to him. And the wonderful thing about that is what God births inside of his people that he's going to use and we don't know about yet, when you are willing to take a step, these things come to pass. They come out. It's like a little bud on a flower. When you're willing to respond to God, the thing opens up and all of a sudden something you didn't know and others didn't know. Here it is. And then life, joy, and peace come to pass in your life, not because you got money, because you got a name, or people are following, or people like you. You've got peace because you know that God's favor has been found in your life. And it's a good thing. God likes that. That's the way it ought to be. God wants us willing. It's just like in Exodus 35, when it came time to contribute to the temple, the only people God said, I want anything from, is those who are willing. If they're going to give grudgingly, well, they're talking about money. Keep your money. If you put it in the box before you got here and you didn't like, then get you something and get down there and get it out if you want to. But God wants willing hearts from all of us. Willingness. In fact, in three of the verses in Jeremiah 35, he said, Take from among you an offering unto the Lord Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it. It goes on to say, everyone whose heart stirred him up and everyone in whose spirit was made willing, let him bring his offering. Because I want to. Who makes us want to? It's God. God makes us want to. He sees our heart. He knows that. So, Back to obligation. What is obligation? I mean, you look at it in a dictionary, it could mean something legally binding. Uh, it could be a moral obligation or a moral binding. Or it could be something that is necessary or essential, obligation is. But it, in the spiritual sense, I think of obligation, I saw it yesterday. Two people fall in love. The wonder of it all. And the only way that love is going to come out between two people and be what it is, is if two people are obligated to something even before it happens. 
Are you here? The wonder of it all. This obligation is a commitment. It's necessary for everything that God has for us to be realized. It's love. And when they begin to obligate themselves to that, then God begins to bring it to pass. I think of obligation as putting your hand to the plow. God doesn't make you put your hand to the plow. You can quote Luke 9 the rest of your life and never put your hand to the plow. You can preach on the plow as a preacher and never put your hand to the plow. But when you do, it's a commitment. God says, when you put your hands on that plow, you're obligated to keep them there until the field is finished. And there are stumps and there are rocks. There's the sunshine, the heat of the day, uh, the difficulty of keeping the... It's not easy. Most won't do it. But you can. But you won't realize the joy of being a, a plower unless you plow. You've got to be obligated to do it first. Because if you obligate yourself to do it and you're the kind of person you ought to be, you won't quit. You'll hang in there and you'll stay with it and you will not give up or draw back. Obligation is seen in credit card companies. You think of that. The uh, is your fault. The company establishes a name, whether it's Visa, MasterCard, Discovery, whoever. And businesses around the country are willing to accept what they say about paying your bill. So they say to you, use our card. Let me give you a credit card. You don't have to carry cash. Just use this card. Hey, have a good day. Go. You don't have to. Yeah, go. And we will pay for all your purchases. You buy something, we'll pay for it. We will obligate ourselves as a company to you and to wherever you buy that to pay your bill. And all we want you to do in this contract is you obligate yourself to pay us back. That's fair, isn't it? It's not the IRS. We're having church, all right? It's fair. Now, there's a little clause in the contract that says, now, in the event something comes up, you can't pay all of that back, whatever you spent. Pay us back a certain percentage of it. But now you understand that uh, there will be a penalty imposed upon you for what you don't pay back. And it, it's pretty hefty, like 20-some percent. You break that down, each of my times. This. Okay, that, uh, that's not good. Why they charge so much? You didn't have to get the card before you start crying. You know, I've said before, I know people that have run up bills of several thousands of dollars on a credit card. I don't know how you do that. I grew up at a time you just didn't do that. But I know, I know, I know. Why would a company pay all your bills? They paid them. All those things you bought which you can't find anymore, they paid for all that stuff. A company paid for all that for you, just for you. And you kept drawing by, I can't pay, that's too much, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. and next thing you know, you're in hawk thousands of dollars, and the interest is more than the payment used to be. And we get to crying about this and crying. It's not the credit card company's fault. You're reneging on your obligation. You said, you gave your word, you signed your name, I will do this. And now you're acting like a lot of Christians. I will follow you, Lord, though none go with me. Still, I will follow where we're going. How far is it? When you start drawing back a little bit, it's easier to draw back just a little bit more. And suddenly all the joy and things you had in Christ, it begins to give way to your conscience. Something's not right in your life. There's a flaw in there. Something darkens the picture a bit. You've got this credit card bill. Now you can't go on vacation. Now you can't do this. You can't do because you're in debt over your head. They're charging me too much. You shouldn't have taken the card, should you? Cut it up. Throw it away. That'd be like getting rid of your TV set, wouldn't it? Can't do it. It's amazing, folks, when God begins to find people that are willing to hold fast to their end of the deal. And be honorable and like it, they begin to do what they're supposed to do without complaint. Paul said, you know, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, 
I preach the gospel without cost. There's no charge for hearing the gospel. For necessity is laid on me. And woe is me if I preach not the gospel. You see, a long time ago, I guess he would say, I obligated myself to the Lord to do his bidding. And boy, he sent me a lot of places. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been run out of town. I've been harassed, scoffed at, rumored against. And I was a blue blood Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees. And the longer I did the Lord's bidding and ran the Lord's way, I didn't give up and quit. But I realized some things in my life that has brought God more into my life. I realized that I'm a chief of sinners. I am the least of all the saints. I am less than the least of all the apostles. I have located myself that I am not worthy of all the wonderful things that are given to me, but he gave them to me. And with a grateful and a humble heart, I'm willing to surrender whatever I've got to the Lord. I mean, you talk about surrendered hearts. It's not gaining the world and having all the beautiful attractions of this world in your house. It's just having your heart so knit with his that whatever he wants All he has to do is, and you say, here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, send me. With my education, with my talents, with everything I have, let me surrender everything to you because that's what God wants. Jeremiah, everywhere you go, we said earlier, everywhere you go, people throwing rocks at you, throwing you in dungeons, they're beating you up, trying to kill you. A mangy old man like you, why, why, why are you doing this? Jeremiah said in chapter 20, he said, I told the Lord, I said, I will not make mention of him anymore. I will not speak anymore in this name. Every time I open my mouth, it's destruction and doom and gloom and people hate me. But you know what he said? Because he had obligated himself to the Lord. He said, but his word was shut up in my bones like fire. And I could not contain it. I could not keep all of that in. That decision I made a long time ago, that step I took towards the kingdom, God has birthed it and he is nourishing it and he is bringing it forth. And even though I'm trying to quit, he won't let me quit because he that started this good work is going to what? He's going to complete it. In spite of me, God's going to make it. But oh, when my eyes are open and I begin to discover the goodness of all this, praise God, it gets better and better and better. But spiritually, a man who is obligated to God is a man who takes what God reveals to him personal. That everything that God says is personal. You begin to take everything personal, even his rebukes. They're not for the person beside you, they're for you. But this is what happens. You begin to realize that you're following him and his word. You're not following a system. You're not following a corporation. You're not trying to follow well-devised plans of man. You just want to serve the Lord. As I said earlier, I remember in the early days of uh, my life, we had no teaching. There was no training. There wasn't any years and years of being systematically taught, whether it be doctrine or things of God, his attributes and so forth, or the Sermon on the Mount, or an ethics class. We'd never been taught that. All we knew to do was knock on doors. I'd never done that before, but we'd started doing it. We went to the water company, got all the names of all the new people that moved to town. They had no church affiliation that we knew of, so we weren't getting in anybody else's way. And, we, and there was these bright eyes looking at these people coming to the door, picking up again hitchhikers. Somebody had a problem somewhere, a house burned or something. We would go to those people and try to help them take up money to pay bills and buy kerosene or heating, whatever, just... Something for everybody else. That's all we knew to do. Is that service? Were we serving the Lord or were we serving ourselves? We were serving the Lord. We didn't mind staying up and then come back to church and pray for an hour or two. 
and laugh and rejoice and praise God for the little successes we saw. I still remember, I've forgotten the man's name, I'm ashamed to say, but the first door we ever knocked on in which we went in and talked to a man and we prayed with him to be saved. And I remember coming back to church, you know, just, do you suppose in any way that promoted a desire to go a little further? He was an older fellow, never had much for God, never had much for church. And I guess the words we spoke to him, God directed to his heart. We had to learn the first time I ever knocked on doors, it was supposed to be a two-by-two two meeting. You know, we're going out two-by-two. Two. The preacher kept talking about this program at church, two-by-two, two, knocking on I thought, I'm going to go once. I'm going to go once, and then he can preach the rest of them, because I was getting convicted about sitting there all the time every week, hearing the preacher talk about what we ought to be doing. Well, I wasn't doing it. Nobody else was either. It was just religion. So I said, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go once, because I thought there'd be a whole bunch of people there. And I went there, and it was just one car in a lot. And I thought, man, everybody's supposed to be here. Well, I was going to turn around and go home until the preacher pulled the curtain back. Well, if the preacher pulls the curtain back, and you can see him form your name, you better not go home. <laughs> I remember going into the office, and when I got into the office, the only other guy there besides the preacher was an elder in our church. I didn't know him. I'd been in teaching school for a few years, and I came back to this area and went to church here where I grew up, and this fellow had come while I was gone, and I'd heard about him being in a car wreck once and having a plate. And, you know, and so it's just a little slow, but we were going to go out and witness. And I'm thinking, see, this is how corrupt I was. I got to go with him. He didn't even know how to talk. I grew up in this town. This fellow here, all he can do at the communion table is shut his eyes and make up a prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. Well, nobody prayed like that. Everybody had their own, you know. My daddy would have said, bless us, O Lord, and these I guess which you're about to receive through Christ our Lord. Amen. And I would say, thank you for the world's sweet, thank you for the food, be thankful for the thank God for everything. Amen. That is my prayer. Oh, we say, our Father, start in heaven, how be the name of the king. You know, we could do that. But make your own? But Bob did. I used to refer to him as eighth grade Bob because they said that's as far as he got. My dad told me he was in eighth grade three years before they made him quit. <laughs> so that was okay. It was in my family. And so, man, we're riding around and Bob's trying to talk. And all he wants to talk about is Jesus. Man, he was a blooming. He was a blossom. He was in there with some briar. I was a briar. Talk about, isn't it good, Tom, who we're out here serving the Lord tonight? Well, you got to, yeah, it's really good. And the first house we go up to knock on, I thought, oh, brother. I did. Oh, brother. I got to knock. What if it's somebody I know and I'm with him? I'm going to have to do all the talking. I don't know what to say, but I've got to say something because I've been in school and I know how to greet and talk. And So somebody comes to the door. Yes, we're from the First Christian Church. I'm Tom. This is Bob. And uh, we understand you're new in town. And we would like to uh, invite you to our church and uh, wondered if we could spend a few moments with you. Most people will let you in. Some of them won't. So we kind of got in and said, we'd like to explain a few things. We have a lot to offer. We have a nice uh, nursery, a nice parking lot, and easy to... Well, what do you say if you're not a Christian? What do you talk about? Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the... You can't do that. Well, I'm here. I took a pause, and, and Bob said, Brother Tom, Brother Tom, Brother. I said, Brother Tom, can I say something? What would you tell him? No? No, you can't say anything. Let me. I'm, I said, well, of course. And he started, he said, have you ever been born again? And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness gracious. I did. I thought, oh, brother. Oh. And, of course, I'm trying to act like, yeah. Uh-huh. You've been born again? Have you ever met Jesus? And, mm-hmm. 
And while he's preaching to this, whoever we were talking to, he was killing me. I mean, the words he was saying were words that God used to stir me up. When I got back to the church building that night, all I wanted to do was get out of the car and get away from this guy. He was terrible. And I was getting ready to break my door to get out. And he said, Tom, I said, oh, don't start. Don't preach. So. <laughs> if you, oh, I said, yes. He said, Tom, you see all those stars up in the sky tonight? Oh. There's a lot of them, Bob. I'll never forget, he said, you know, Tom, he said, the same God that put all those stars in the skies in this car with us tonight, and he loves you. Thank you, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) By the time I got home, I was almost to the point of tears because that in my heart, I didn't realize that's what I wanted. That's what I really did want deep inside me. It had never been brought up. And this guy stirred it up. My closet doors flew open. The chains broke. And this reality came up. That's what I need. And I thought, I'm not fit to knock on a door. I'm not fit to lead in prayer. I had a Sunday school class. I'm not fit to lead a Sunday school class. I'm not fit for anything spiritual because I'm not a spiritual man. I'm embarrassed by God. He embarrasses me. Talking about Jesus in public embarrasses me because other people think funny about me like they did about Jeremiah. I want what I've got to be personal and contained so we whispered amongst ourselves. I don't want it to be broadcast. Standing here today, how would I have ever known how to serve God unless God had not in some way stirred me up and made me realize there's something in you that I want. I'm going to use you. Oh, God, don't let Bob talk to me. We had to pass out invitations to a citywide crusade at our church one night. And guess who was the only two people that showed up to pass out 100 or 200 of these pants? Me and Bob. And I was complaining, as, as most coaches, I mean, as most, uh, a lot of people do. I'm walking up the street there with a stack of papers. Got to go up to each house and put one on this and walk up there. And he's on that side. And we were walking up the street. And I said, I wonder why nobody else is doing this. I don't know why we have to do all this kind of work. And Bob said this. He said, Tom, maybe God only needed us. I said, man, you are a terrible man to fellowship with. <laughs> You're an awful man to be around. Because it convicted me. Because I knew that's exactly right. What's coming out of him? I realize now I want that to come out of me, but I don't know how to do that. The word of God hadn't had a full-blown impact on my heart yet. We had never been taught. We had church. Church was three double-spaced type sheets of the sermon, the preacher used to call it. And we preached until the clock on the wall over the organ hit that bottom number, 11.30, you better wind her down, brother. And it didn't matter what he said. All we wanted to do was see Mrs. Cartwright get on the organ seat because that was we're getting ready to go home. That was my church. Teaching, my Sunday school teacher had to ask us once, where's Ephesians, Old Testament or New Testament? Who cares? Who cares? God has brought us to him and all of this that he's going to use, it's just lying there. It's not being stirred up. See, I think maybe y'all need a preacher, somebody to come here and stir y'all up. Y'all. Somebody to just give you a nice kick every now and then. Somebody that's had a taste of something in another country and come back and say, you know what, folks? There's country, countries, plural. There are people south of here, around the other side of the world, that are waiting on you. They can't give you anything for coming, but they're dying. They don't know what they can do, what they can be, what they can have. And you're only going to see them once or twice, and they may never see you again. All you can do is sow some seed. 
You might think, well, how can I serve God that way? Everything you do that he sends you to do is something he's going to use to bring forth his fruit. Oh, I don't want to go there. Marty went to Pakistan. How many of you would like to go to Pakistan and preach? You might lose your head over there. Well, maybe you wouldn't. He didn't. (laughs) You know, Christians in some of these countries live in danger every day. There's not a day they don't. People in the world who live to get by one day and try to find enough food so they can live one more day. One more day. We can't even relate to that. But if we ever get a taste of that and we ever see needs besides ourselves, something will switch around. Somebody goes and looks and comes back and says, folks, we got a need. There's a need. There's a bunch of people who want to meet every night. They got no place to meet. They got a little spot down there. We go down and put a building on it. Would you like to go? Would you like to help somebody else? Well, what can I do? You can go for one thing, and you'll learn what to do when you get there. Well, all I can do is carry a concrete block. I bet you carry one, you can carry two. I bet if you carry two, you can carry three. Oh, my hands are getting hurt. Then put some rags or gloves on them, carry three or four more. Well, what are we going to eat? Beans and rice. <laughs> and then rice and beans. Well, you think you're going to get a steak every night? You're serving the Lord, not yourself. Remember that. This is for the Lord's work, not yourself. This is for God. And you begin to let God stir you up. You say, well, what about the people that can't go? Somebody has to stay home. Don't they? Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel 30 when David came back to Ziklag and it was burned with fire? And all their children and the wives had been captured and carried away. And the people spoke of stoning David. You remember that? Well, the people finally got together. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And David and his men, they went out. And they recaptured all their stuff. And they brought it back. But the men who went out and fought to bring it all back didn't want to share what they had recaptured with those who didn't go with them. You know what David said? He said, the people that stayed here with the stuff and protected where we are and kept this place from being run over again, they have as much right to what we do as what they did. So, yes, we're going to share with them. The mother who stays home with three or four kids, she can't go someplace and give up motherhood to do all of this, but she can stay home and make citizens for God's kingdom. Somebody's got to feed these children. Somebody's got to correct them. Somebody's got to put them to bed and teach them right and wrong. Daddy can't do that. He's doing what he's doing. But mom is doing something just as important. She is doing what she does. She is serving the Lord when she does that. Even in a marriage, in a wife who submits to her husband, a husband who loves his wife. You know why we do it? We do it as unto the Lord. I think I said it yesterday to this young couple. You're not loving this man because he deserves it. You're not loving this woman because she's earned it. You're not being happy because they made you happy. This is all unto the Lord. Your husband is an object of how you relate to God. Your wife is an object of how you relate to God. You love her as Christ loved his church. How does he love us? When we don't deserve it? Does he or not? He sure does. We've got it far better than we deserve. Ezra said, you haven't punished us near as much as our sins deserve. We're getting off light. He didn't say getting off light. But he was aware that our sins have been so offensive to you, you could have wiped us off of this earth. And what you did was reroute our lives and bring great conviction and sorrow. And then you forgave us so you wouldn't have to judge us. Oh, what a wonderful God. How good God is to his people. So in this business of being obligated, we will close this morning by asking the question. How is it 
that we become obligated? I mean, how specifically do we become motivated to step out and serve? How do we become willing to surrender our hearts, our lives, our skills, whatever we have, whatever we think we have? How do we come to this? People have different testimonies that happened this way to this one. I just shared with you some about mine, but in the bigger picture, what did Jesus do? Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save lost people. We were lost. We would never know we're lost until we were convicted that we were lost because people join church without ever being saved. They go to church because it's a socially good thing to do. It's what decent, proper people do. Being saved is not even an issue in most places. It's just being religious, being a good member of a church. But Jesus came. He did what he did. God raised him from the dead to verify his life. And Jesus said, my spirit will convict you. will stir you up that one Sunday, that one divine moment in which you in your complacency waiting for the church to begin and waiting for it to end. That one moment God visited you, stirred you up, put in your heart an interest you'd never had before, a conviction you never had before, something that was compelling you. God does that. Now, man may do it by motivational tactics, but only God can do it so that it lasts, so that it stays in there forever. And when God began to convict us of our sins, he brought godly sorrow into our life. I saw myself as God sees me. And I loathe myself. I realized that I have been so indifferent to God, I have been, in effect, a spiritual criminal. I do understand the sentence of death is in me, rightly so. I deserve that. And God has been so gracious to not only reveal to me my sin, but to offer me repentance. That's a gift. It's something that only God can give. There's a lot of people trying to be spiritual who have never repented. They have never hated their past and turned away from their sins. They've never done it. They've never made the turnaround because what can I do? Well, what can any of us do? But I promise you this, when God turns you around to face him, there's something inside of you he's going to bring out of you. You may not know what it is right now, but you have something. Nobody is empty. You may live void. You may live separated from God, satisfied with the status quo or just being, a, in your own estimation, a good person. But when God brings you to himself and shows you who you are and you repent and he forgives you of all your sins and you're born again, then the Holy Spirit comes and he begins to illumine. Like he said in Ephesians 1, I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation revealing in the knowledge of him. You'd never known him, but now you can. You've never seen him. Job said, I've heard of you. I've talked about you. I've been doing all these duties to you, but now I know who you are. And I, I'm in sackcloth and ashes. Lord, I put my hand over my mouth. I have nothing more to say. And I know who you are. You're God. You begin to see him. God begins to bring you down to that place of humility. He begins to stir you up. And do all these things that he wants you to do. Why? You know why? We're going to go through this in close. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Why? God does this for one reason. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Love is a pretty loose-knit word today. People who sleep around, live together, they call it love. Making love, they call it. Love has nothing to do with it. It's all about lust for them, but love is divine. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of those chapters which defines love in the Bible. Listen at these words. He said, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity or love, 
I am just a lot of noise. Though I be a gifted speaker, eloquent, very good with words and phrases, etc. But it's not, listen to me, but it's not motivated by or brought forth because of a love for people. You are nothing more than a noise maker in God's kingdom. And though I have the gift of prophecy, whoa. Or understand all mysteries, whoa. And all knowledge, whoo. And though I have all faith, wow. So that I could remove mountains. If I do all of that without love being behind it, it is for nothing. Oh, no, that's not for nothing. Look at all the things you did. Listen, Jesus said to a lot of people that did a lot of things, I never knew you. Oh, you had your ministry. You got your big name. You were popular and invited. You wrote books and you made a lot of money. And oh, yeah, you did all of that. You were satisfied that you were important in God's kingdom. What would the kingdom do without you? But you did it for yourself. You got your reward. You got paid back while you were on this earth. Heaven wasn't for you. People don't like to hear that, but it's the truth. Listen to this in verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. That's missionary sounding to me. And though I give my body to be burned. If I have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Does your Bible say that? Nothing. Zero. Well, this love is a big deal. It's defined. Charity, verse 4, love suffers long. It is kind. Love doesn't envy other people. Love doesn't vaunt itself. Love doesn't puff itself up. Look how important I am. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. It thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity and nastiness and uncleanness. But love rejoices in the truth. Love will bear up all things. Discomfort, problems, Second Corinthians 12. It puts up with a lot of things. But it never gives up. It never fails. Where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know in part and we prophesy in part when that which is perfect is come and so forth. You realize how important love is? Love is like a, a major pillar in a person's life, man or woman, that makes them who they are. And it's all about your love for God. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Be the focus of my life. Let me go and see what you see. Let me go and do what you do. Let me learn as you teach. And then make my heart strong and steadfast. I don't want to be a troublemaker. I don't want to wish what somebody else has. I don't want to be a, a commenter about what's wrong. I don't want to be one involved in talking and gossip. I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. Do unto others, Jesus said, as they would do unto you. It's because of love. It's because you have obligated yourself to God on his terms to do his bidding as he wants, whether in Shelbyville, in your home, or in Timbuktu. Whether it's India or Pakistan or South America, been there, or you folks are going down to... Anywhere in the world. I'm not there to quit. I'm not there to make a name for myself. I'm here as an ambassador of God. What I have learned, I want to share with you. That's all I got. That's all you're going to get. And as he has done it to me, let me do it unto you. I don't know any other way that I can properly serve the Lord as well as I could if I do that. God isn't asking for massive talent. 
He didn't save anybody because of talent. He didn't save anybody because of some grace you have, some social grace. He didn't save you because you're rich. He does bless people. I'm glad he does prosper people because one of the gifts in, in Romans 12 is that of giving. So somebody's getting blessed. They may not be able to go, but their money can go. Turn to Matthew in closing. Matthew 25. Without love motivating me or you, listen to, we're just a lot of noise. We profit nobody like those prophets did. When you love yourself, you promote yourself. When you love God, you promote God. What you love, you promote. Your career, your children, your money, your fame, your fortune, your testimony. What you love, you promote. Whoever's got your heart has got you. Didn't Jesus say that? Love is a choice. Nobody can love for you. You've got to love on your own. It's like obligation is a choice. Hate's a choice. It's your decision. But you do it. You do it when it's right because of the effect that God has had on you. I just want to serve God. How do you serve God in anything he gives me to do? Any little thing, any big thing, any correcting my child is serving God because that's what the Bible says. Speaking a good word, kind word to my husband when he's down is serving the Lord. Telling my wife I love her more than once a month to me is serving the Lord. It's something inspired by God, and you're doing it because you know God wants you to do that, as unto the Lord. It's how we love. We're here in this meeting, hopefully because we love the Lord, we love his words. Teach me thy way. Speak to me, Lord, so that I can do what you want me to do. Because you said in John 14, if a man loves God, he will keep his word. He can't keep what he doesn't have. Teach me. Proclaim what he says. Don't worry about how I react or my feelings. I won't like it. I don't want to change. But say it anyway, because if I don't change, I'm in trouble. I want to love God, not myself. And so you begin to say what you have to say, desire what you want to say. But the whole point is what you love, you serve. Now, in Matthew 25, have you found it yet? All right, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall say unto his sheep, Are you a sheep? Are y'all sheep? Well, here's what he is saying. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For this might be qualifying you. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. You didn't condemn me. You visited me. I was in prison, and you came into me. Then shall the righteous answer him and say, Lord, when we ever saw you like that? You, I mean, you hunger, you naked, you thirsty, you in prison? When did we ever... In verse 38, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto you? Verse 40, listen to this. And the king shall answer and say, and Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Would you agree that... Whatever you have done, whatever act of kindness and compassion or love you had to the least of these, it was unto the Lord. Would you say that? Yes. 
then it's service. Nobody made you do it. You were compelled to do this. Something stirred you up and you took a step and God directed you to where he was as a stranger on the street, somebody naked, no clothes, nothing to eat, no place to meet, no home, in prison, sick. And you cared about him. You had a heart for them. You wouldn't want to be like that. So you took your time to do something to help these people. A phone call, a note you wrote to somebody that's hurting or suffering. You're serving the Lord. You're doing good. You did this and you did that and you went there and you didn't ask for anybody to reward you. You knocked on the door, put your little offering there and you left. Nobody knew where it came from except God. You get your reward in heaven. I don't want any praise. I just want God to know that what I did, I did it as unto him. Listen to 41. Then he shall say... And to those on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, because they wouldn't do that. Isn't that awful? They could have. They could have done that. They had an opportunity to do that. God will make sure you see needs, but he won't make you meet them. He will compel you. He will encourage you. He will saturate your heart with compassion. But you've got to step out. Remember the Bible said, Whoso hath this world's good and seeth a brother in need, but he shuts up his bowels of compassion from him. The question in 1 John 3 is, How dwelleth the love of God in that person? It's the one thing, folks, that is heavenly. Faith is for this life. You won't need faith in heaven. Hope, that's for this life. You won't need that in heaven. But love will never cease because God himself is love. And the very fact that God inhabits somebody and promotes somebody's life and brings in us a compelling, loving desire, not only to weep over them, but to get out there and help them is service to God. And your service could be nothing more than a drink of water because you care. This is part one. The best part's coming. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, these are your people. They're not mine. You brought them here. I didn't. The word is yours. It's not mine. We in this room this morning ask you to cause us to see ourselves as your people. The people that you send, the people that you use, that you would make us willing, that you would stir up our hearts, especially to transfer love from ourselves and our lives over to you and your way and your kingdom. May grace abound in us to that end. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.